All right, welcome to the Pursuit of Prosperity podcast. Um, I'm here with a good friend of mine today, uh, Mason from Spraytex Painting. Um, he and I have done a bunch of deals together. We've known each other for, man, probably six years now. And uh, we're gonna talk about business, about hiring, about finding the right people, and what's the real point behind business. We're also gonna get to some real estate, some different deals we've done. Um, so thanks so much for being here. Appreciate you joining me today. Um, where can people find out more about you? Uh, you can check out Spray Text Painting Instagram and Facebook, YouTube. Um, yeah, or go to our website directly at spraytextpainting.com. Awesome. Well, we're going to jump into it today. Uh, this is a good one. So you guys, you guys got a treat in store. We'll start out with how we met. I remember you called me after I was on a podcast, and I talked to you for a few minutes, and I was like, yeah, let's meet. And then you ended up like, really hitting it off and having more of a relationship with my wife Yeah. after that. And you originally called out cause you had, you called me cause you had a painting company and you wanted to like do work and learn about real estate. Yeah. That- that's, that's the gist of it. I saw you on, on Facebook and on a podcast and was like, man, I, I really want to use my trades business to get closer to these investors Yeah. and learn, learn the ropes. And you got, you like, you've done several real estate deals. You still own that. I've sold you a portfolio and like, Denison, right? 12 homes. Denison, Sherman. I think we even got some Bonham sprinkled in there. So you still own this? Yep. 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 They work out. I mean, yeah, because you bought them in 2020, right? They've been a huge pain in the ass, but they've worked out. Yeah. But like, I'm sure their value is solid now. Significantly increased since since I invested. You even hooked me up with uh, the lending on the front end and the company I refinance with, Mm -hmm. Jeff at First Bank. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a good deal through and through, and it kind of like um, kept me satisfied for the last couple of years. It's yeah. been a big project rehabbing those and getting them filled. It is a big project. We actually we just contracted a package of twelve in like Northwest Fort Worth, and we're like, "Yeah, go do this." We're not keeping them though. That's not our intention, anyways. Yeah, if rates drop dramatically, maybe, but uh, we'll probably sell most of them, if not all of them. Are you guys going to get them occupied, then sell them? They're all occupied right oh, now. Oh, perfect. So we actually bought, so so far this month, we've contracted a 12-pack and a 5-pack, all fully occupied, all month-to-month tenants, and both of them were getting seller financing from the sellers because we're like, hey, we want to buy them, but your rate sucks, so give us a good rate. So we're at like 5% interest rate on. That's great. Yeah, I'm like, eh, I can do it at that. That makes yeah. more, more sense. So just like every percent you lower that interest rate, especially on, one of them's a half, uh, 550,000 purchase. The other one's like 1.75 roughly. Mm. It's a little less, I think 1.73, some, I don't know, something like that. But it's like when you're talking at those numbers, that 1% of interest rate is thousands a month. Makes a huge difference it's in brutal. return. Yep. Yeah. So you got into, I know you've done some buy and holds mm-hmm. and you have what now? Like, is it just the 12 doors? Or I've do you- got 14 and one seller finance deal where you seller financed it to somebody? Did you wrap the note? Yep. Yep. That one's actually my best. (laughs) Those ones, man, they pay out the best. Yeah. Yeah. They're very easy too. You know, I've, I've discovered, I love real estate. I wanted, I definitely want to buy more. I spent the last year kind of rebalancing my, my asset classes and just making sure I don't have too much in real estate Mm -hmm. after that big transaction I did with you. But I've learned that I just, I don't love C class rentals. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been able to work something out great with my management company, but it's a different challenge. You know, the people parking in the middle of the lawn, 
yeah. calls that you just just bizarre things pop up and obviously yep. the demographics just a little bit more challenging to work with. I right. don't know if I have a passion for it. Yeah, you've got and with lower quality rentals, you've got a certain tenant class that is mm -hmm. going to live there that has these problems that they're they're weird problems and they're hard to identify with yeah. and it's a lot of like there is a lot of that, but there's also some just great blue collar, hardworking tenants that they're super easy. And so it's, it's hard to know which one's coming into your property before they're there. We've done a good job, like weeding out the more difficult ones, yeah. but it's been a journey. Yeah, it is difficult for yeah. sure. And the, another thing that I experienced too, is like buying all these properties with month to month tenants, every single one of them is dramatically below market. Mm. So like, getting them out of the properties is going to be a challenge because where are they going to go? You know, it's like, exactly. Like they are going to have a kick in the pants when it's time to get out because it's like, Hey, you're looking at a 50% rent increase no matter where you go. I've found myself having to really strongly incentivize people to move out. Yeah. Whether it's just, you know, buy them out of the lease or offer them some kind of cash for keys. Like I've, yeah. I've not been afraid to do that with that situation. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. It's a, it's an interesting situation. Some of these properties I go into, man, like it looks like they've been living there for 30 years. Like there is so much weird stuff mm -hmm. in there. They've got everything on the walls and I'm like, Oh, this is going to be, in fact, the first property I bought crystal referred it to me and I get there and ended up a great deal. I don't, I think I bought it for about $35,000. Hard to put twenty five, thirty thousand dollars into the rehab, and it was worth well over ninety, mm -hmm. probably close to one hundred and twenty at this point. And we're cleaning it out, and the workers were like, "You're never going to believe what we found." And I met the homeowner; she seemed perfectly re like normal. Mm -hmm. It was like a pile of poop in plastic bags that she had been storing under her bed. What? I couldn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> so she'd been crapping in a plastic bag, zipping like Ziploc bags. Yep. Ziplock it and then just slide it under the bed. Mm -hmm. And there's working plumbing in the house. I think we ended up having to redo the plumbing. But, but like, I, at the time, it was perfect. Yeah, it was, dude, it was working. Yeah, that's that's some weird stuff. I, yeah. I don't I don't think I've ever had a pile of bags of turds before. I've never it's, had that one. It's dildos, turds. Yeah, I found like it. I found bongs, that. All the usual. We were renovating one, and um, we found two huge dildos in the HVAC system that someone had been hiding in there. And we mm. couldn't tell, like, had they been there for the, from the last owner or from 10 years ago? Like, it's weird stuff, man. Very. Really weird stuff, real estate. <clears throat> and so with your, uh, with your painting company, you did work with me, and I know we've done, yeah. you've done projects for us. Are you still working with investors, still doing retail? Like, wh which, where do you focus now? You know, at that time... We were probably a tenth the size and we were just trying to get our name out there. Like some steady business. Again, it was more of a a play for me to get closer to you guys and, and learn mm -hmm. about real estate investing. But the painting business itself is direct to consumer, full retail. Uh, that's where we thrive. You know, we've got the management team, we've got the marketing mix, the margins are a little bit better. It's just a uh, that's that's our product market fit. What type of marketing do you do right now? A lot of Facebook ads. Makes sense. Tons of Facebook ads. We do TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. Um, Who's your Google. avatar client that you're going for? 
married, um, household income of about $200,000, half million to $1.2 million house, uh, five year old house. Yeah. We don't want weight. We don't want too high end. We don't want to go super up market. It's a different model. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right around that half million to a million too. Mm-hmm. That's, that's perfect. So you're looking for middle-aged married couples mm-hmm. on Facebook and are they tip? Yeah. Which is, that's where yeah. they hang out. Yeah. Um, are they typically moving out or they just want a, a fresh looking home or what's the, what's the reasoning behind? There's three reasons. It's I'm moving in and I got to make this house look like my own. Yeah. I'm moving out and my realtor says that nobody wants builder beige anymore. Or I've just lived here for 30 years and it's time to go ahead and so update. that's not your typical avatar though. It's one of those three. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. We like, we like the, Hey, I just want to freshen things up. Yeah. That's a great client. Sweet. Yeah. And how, like, do you have someone in-house that manages your marketing or do you, how do you manage all that? Because doing all those ads, like I've done PPC ads, I've done Facebook ads. And if you don't, if you're not watching it closely, it can okay. run out of control real quick. It's the lifeblood of our business. I mean, we need about 130 leads a week. That's a, that's a lot of leads. So, and uh, it's, it's definitely my number one focus. At maybe number two as, aside from my team, but there's no one in-house that directly manages it. I'm managing all the vendors. So you're, so you have, third parties that yep. are doing it and you're managing them on your own. Yep. Interesting. Have you had to go through a lot of third parties to find the ones oh, that fit? Yeah. yeah. It's hard, right? Well, and some people are great. I, my first Facebook guy, I was his first client. He cold emailed me and was like, Hey, I'll do your ads for free. I'm thinking Facebook, it's never going to work. Mm-hmm. And it just took off. I mean, it, it worked for years and then he started having trouble. And I went with this other company that reached out to me on TikTok, direct mm-hmm. marketed me. I connected with the owner and he's running my ads right now. His team, they're doing great. I could see a future where potentially they lose their touch or their totally. Yeah. And I've got to find another place. Yeah. That's uh, man, marketing is it's like this scary beast because it's like it, it can be your best friend and your worst enemy mm-hmm. if you don't take care of it right like a hungry dog or something. Like it if, you really don't, if you don't feed it the right stuff, it might try and eat you. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of crazy. So marketing is. is tough. Like that's something that we're always looking at, like, how can we do better about marketing? Cause it's yeah. such an expensive part of the business, but such an important part. It's, tough. it's expensive not to market. It, well. It's expensive yeah. not to market. It's expensive to market. Yeah. And it's super expensive to market poorly. Absolutely. Oh, brutal. So we've, we, what we've decided on that note is like, we've noticed there's a point of kind of diminishing return. And so there's a couple ways we can go. We can't just spend more to acquire more clients. We can open up more markets or we can really refine our product, really refine our customer experience and focus on relationships, focus on referrals. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're doing is like, we're going to keep the marketing mix, but we're going to focus on quality of experience and building great relationships with GCs, realtors, referral partners, yeah, and then try to get one-to-one for every client. For every client we get, they refer their neighbors and grow the business more organically. Yeah. Because the last couple of years we've just, especially through COVID, we, we exploded. And so we, 
Thanks. We don't desire the same growth rate. So we're really after just, like I said, those quality relationships. Yeah. That's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, mm -hmm. we had some of our best deals are f through referrals. Mm -hmm. Referrals is, if you can get good at referrals, man, you can get, it doesn't matter what business you're yeah, in. Yeah, no like kidding. That, if you can get good at that in any industry, crush it. I don't think there's a big secret other than doing an amazing job for people. That has to be there. Absolutely. And I would also add to that, ask. Yeah. Like, it's as simple as that a lot of times. Like, you got to ask. Yeah. If you don't ask, you're not, it, you might still get them, but you'll get many more if you ask. I totally agree. Right. That's something that I'm, like, retraining my culture on. Yeah. It's such yeah. an easy thing to do. It's a simple mm -hmm. thing to do, but it's also an easy thing not to do. Mm -hmm. But... Um, <clears throat> So just curious in like in our industry, if we want to generate a lead, it costs us to buy a lead is like, uh, depends on the marketing channel, mm -hmm. but it's like 150 for the really cheap, not great leads, low quality up to a thousand dollars a lead. Yeah. Like, but I'd say average is probably about 250, 300. What's it, what does it cost to generate a lead to paint someone's house? It costs $500 per customer that we acquire. Okay. And about $140 an appointment. And then the cost of lead varies. It can be as low as like $20, $30. Average is closer to 50. So three appointments mm -hmm. to get a client and three leads to get an appointment. Mm -hmm. It's not terrible. No. It's not some, bad at all. Some seasons are better than others. For sure. Some channels are better than others. But we really try to keep our cost of appointment closer to about 100, 150. Yeah, we're like, right now, it's not great, but we're probably around 4,000 cost per acquisition and 250 a lead is our average. So, does that tell you? 16 leads to buy a house, mm. roughly. But hey, the right house will pay for a year's worth of leads. Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. Um, and we're like, yeah. For sure all of that but then also we have the other side too is we contract it everything looks like it should be a deal but interest rates suck right now and investors mm -hmm. are scared and so it, it doesn't sell for whatever reason so it's like there's both sides yeah and so yeah fun business right now um what are you guys doing more of are you doing more wholesale are you doing more are you keeping it so I'm, i haven't kept a rental real i mean i've kept so the only rentals i've kept this year are multifamily rentals because mm. it's the only thing i get to cash flow yeah um, like one of the multifamily assets we bought this year, the cheapest one we bought for $39,000 a door, which is like that I can cash flow. Mm -hmm. Um, another one we bought in McKinney for 86, 83, 83,000, something like that, a door, which also McKinney can cash flow. Um, and then we got one in Seagoville for just for like 99,000 a door. Um, and also can cash flow that. That one cash flows though mostly through Section Eight. Mm. Section Eight pays a lot of money, and there's already it's already set up for Section Eight there, but only about a third of the tenants, well, half the tenants for Section Eight, and so we're getting the other half onto Section Eight. But um, Section Eight rents are just man, I, they they pay twenty five thirty percent over market. Very steady, very reliable. And then once they're in, yeah. poof, they're in. They ain't moving. I've got one. I don't know much about it because my property manager is dealing with it, but it seems great. So I think, and I'm probably going to get challenged by someone on these numbers, but I think 
the average amount of time someone stays in a home, like if they go and rent a mm-hmm. home, is three years. If they're Section 8, it's seven. It's more than double. And like turnover is brutal. Yeah. It's super brutal. So if you can avoid that turnover, um, plus you're getting more in rent, plus it's guaranteed, that's all pretty good. Yeah. One thing I've learned about Section 8 tenants is they, so if, if, it's a double-edged sword. If they complain to the housing authority about me, housing authority is going to come look at me. If I complain to the housing authority about them, the housing authority is going to go look at them. And if they lose their benefit, they're homeless. Most of them. So it's kind of a, let's it's both like, keep each other honest. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, there are problem tenants in there and we've had, right. there's like some, I don't, know, I don't know if they're scams, but it's like these people who will go and, basically find homeless people. And I, I'm sure in their mind, they're, mm. they're doing a service, right? But they'll find these homeless people typically, and I'm not saying this to be mean, but typically homeless people are homeless for a reason, mm-hmm. either mental health or drug addiction or, or two major factors to being homeless, as well as like, you know, there's all obviously people who've made some poor life decisions who get in a tough spot and they're homeless for a period of time. Section eight, in my mind, was created to help everybody who falls into the homeless category, but mentally challenged people and uh, drug addicted people. It's like they got to help themselves first before outside helps really going to benefit them long-term. And, uh, but, but that other group of people is 100%. That's, that's what that catch is at the bottom is for those. So people will go out, they'll find these people that are, uh, they're homeless and they're drug addicted or mental health. And, they'll work something out with them to get some sort of kickback or money and place them somewhere because they do have a social security number. They are citizens. They do qualify mm. um, for it, uh, but they're, they're not capable of maintaining a home for, for, for those reasons. And so weeding out those people and making sure you don't lease to them is basically, if you can do that, I feel like you can be super successful with section mm. eight. But if you let those people in, they destroy the property particularly the drug addicted people, mental health depends on the mental health. Um, if they're just depressed or anxiety, they may not, but if they're like, you know, other things that are more intense, they may yeah. have like an, a manic episode and destroy Trash your house. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's more the drug addicted uh, type that will uh, bring other people in, try and get money out of them, um, rent space to people for very cheap in order to, or, or sell drugs to people mm. and let those people do the drugs in their prop in your property where they're leasing. Those problems are, are tough. So this year has been tough to buy an old. I mean, just straight up. It is just tough. Um, and then... Makes sense. So right now, fixing and flipping and wholesaling have been uh, more the main thing. And we've tried to do some different things um, business-wise. Like we tried to set it up so that I wouldn't be in office anymore. Because, you know, like you mentioned before we started recording, we both would rather not work in the office. Yeah. Um, so we tried to set things up that way. It didn't work. And uh, I back here full time, which is good. I actually, right now I'm enjoying being here because being at work for me is really fun when we're growing and expanding and and doing more and seeing the result of the effort. That's enjoyable. Once it gets to like a maintain level, it's far less enjoyable for me to be in the office. That makes sense. Like it feels like, cause that's kind of what you're saying where you're at is more of a maintenance. You don't, you don't want to grow you do want to grow your business. You want to grow your margins. You want to grow, but you're not looking for. Like it's not that hockey phase. stick. Yeah, yeah you don't. You don't want that, that zero to seven year where 
you're trying to double every year, get yeah. the right staff in place. There's yeah. something exciting about that. Yeah. And we're, we're kind of back into that. We got a, we got a good core team and mm -hmm. I'm getting them to understand how their positions on the team and how to execute well at their position. And if the different positions are executing well throughout, then we can have that really good customer experience that you're talking about, which mm -hmm. sometimes I think we deliver really well. And sometimes we freaking miss by a mile. So I had a couple of conversations about missing by a mile this morning. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's like what, what's going on? How does, how do you miss by a mile? You know, we, we have great reviews. Like I definitely want to brag on our team for a minute. We have awesome reviews and having good reviews and, home services is not easy mm -hmm. I mean, a client could have one misstep we show up a little bit late and give yeah. you a one-star review no consequence we had two two-star reviews in the last like 48 hours and that's really uncommon mm -hmm. so just kind of coaching my team through hey what's the breakdown here what can we learn and we have a 99 percent success rate getting bad reviews either removed or improved not by doing anything manipulative, but by recovering and taking care of the situation with integrity. Yeah. So if you want, we can talk about like a specific situation. Yeah, be situation. curious. Like what, what happened and how'd you fix it? Well, one of them, I was at the Stars game on Friday night and I saw it pop up on my phone and like any, you know, neurotic business owner, I called the customer right away and said, mm -hmm. hey, what's going on? Let's chat. Tell me about your experience. And I ended up pulling up our customer feedback form, which was from a couple months ago, and it was all 10s. So he rated us 10 out of 10. Great company I'd highly recommend. And so I'm thinking, what happened between when you signed off on the job and now where you're leaving two stars? Well, he said, you know, I looked up at the ceiling and I just noticed some sheen variation. I'm not really happy with it. Like, if you guys can take care of this for me, I'll get it fixed. Like, that's easy that's, enough. That seems like, easy, yeah. Yeah, no big deal. The one this morning was a little bit more complicated. It was a whole story about, seems like there is poor communication from sales to production. Your production team mm. tried to change order me for stuff that I already told the sales team about. There's a lot of overhead, and there doesn't seem to be the quality of work that mm -hmm. I expected. And really what I heard that was loud for me is something along the lines of, I felt like your production managers were trying to explain away the mistakes instead of owning them. It's like a big no-no for yes. us. Yeah. Like they weren't taking responsibility. They weren't validating the customer's experience. And what's a really difficult part of managing project managers is they're so focused on task a task b getting things done they don't always look at how a situation may occur for the customer and so what's really easy for them to do is call the customer crazy well the customer is crazy the customer is difficult and it totally lets them off the hook yeah. for how they can show up in that situation and so to train and coach that gap is what i'm working on with a couple couple guys on my team yeah that is very tricky another mm -hmm. thing you mentioned that's difficult and i've seen this across so many businesses is communication from sales to production oh my god like yeah. especially because the people who exist in production have one way of thinking mm -hmm. not one way of thinking i shouldn't say that but typically they fit a different personality profile than sales personality profiles so those two profiles don't always communicate super well with mm -hmm. each other 
and then the sales guys are doing what they got to do to get a sale and production guys are trying to typically they're very organized and like a rule following type of person. Yep. Like, Hey, we need to add this additional space to be painted. Well, unfortunately the sales guy didn't explain it. So I got to charge you the extra whatever. Then the customer feels nickel and dimed. Yep. And you got to switch the hats, you know, and go from, Hey, I'm, I'm production manager to sales to uh, customers experience and think through all of those. That's tough, man. Hands down, tough. the production managers have the hardest job. Yeah. Yep. Because they have the company to please, the client to please, first and foremost. They have their painters that they need to take care of, and they've also got to support their sales team. Yeah. And make everybody happy. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something we work on a lot culturally is making sure the production sales silos are broken down and there's clear communication across the board. How do you do that? It's a, it's a big undertaking. Um, I learned it starts with who you hire, the culture and values that you create in your company, uh, who I am and how I show up as a leader makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. And then what kind of rhythms do we create as a company to keep the conversation going? So we're really big about radical candor and, and the organization saying what's on your mind, saying what's real for you and making sure that there's a space on a recurring basis so that the stuff that needs to be said gets said. So we have sales production meetings. I'm purposefully not in those meetings so I can create some extra safety for people to just share and open up and connect with each other. Mm -hmm. And then I'll put a couple leaders like, hey, you're going to advocate for the sales team. Hey, you're going to advocate for the production team. And let's keep the conversation going. What I've learned is when you create that space, things improve. And eventually there's not a lot to talk about. We've already hammered out the first five common problems. Yeah. But then I always get cocky and I remove that meeting. I'm like, let's not have unnecessary meetings. Yeah. Then the problems start creeping right back up. And what I realize is you've got to reinforce and create feedback. Sometimes it's just so there isn't resentment that gets built because resentment gets built on both sides. hundred percent. And that's what we try to avoid. And that's what we try to come right out at with my team and say, Hey, this will happen if you don't say what's what you're holding back, what you're concealing. It's like a marriage. It's exactly like that. <laughs> Man, yeah, that's that's fascinating how how you've done that because that is. I don't. I'm not going to sit here and say it's the biggest challenge in business, but I have yet to hear of a business where that is not a challenge. Like everybody struggles with that, and I couldn't agree more with your reasoning behind it. So it works. If you can do that, it works. The other hard thing that I've found is, so you use the word candor. If you replace that word. And take everything you just said, replace it with the word truth. Yeah. It's very, very, because uh, and candor and truth, I don't think are so different. No. Uh, because truth, truth is an interesting thing because everybody has their own truth. It's a little bit different than uh, the, the truth. actual truth. <laughs> and is there a the truth? I mean, there yeah. are with certain things, but there also is not with other things. And when you're talking about clients and how they feel, or people. Well, it's true. People and how they feel. Does 
truth does truth. the truth matter? Not really. If we're talking about people. It's their truth. Exactly. Whatever their and truth is. And we does. really try to honor that and respect it. And we use the word the distinction stories versus reality. It's like we all have our own story about our experience. And then there's the reality. There's the truth. There's the objective what happened or yeah. what's so. And we try not to spend a ton of time giving power to the reality. Reality is important, but what's so for the customer or their story is what, what's important to them. So how does, so let's say, I'm just curious on how yeah. you'd handle this situation. So a uh, sales guy goes out, says, you know, 5,000 bucks to paint yeah. these rooms or whatever. Here's the scope, Cut, client agrees, production team goes out. And there's like a discrepancy. Yeah. Clients like, hey, I thought I was getting my ceilings and baseboards painted. Productions like, no, this this scope is only for, you know, walls and doors or whatever. Let's say that's the the situation. Yeah. And there's a there's a discrepancy there. How do you handle that discrepancy with sales and the customer? You just do the extra work for free, so you don't get that bad review. And then what do you do with the sales guy who clearly wasn't able to communicate? effectively what the customer was getting common breakdown very yeah. common breakdown what i've learned or at least my philosophy is i don't want steadfast rules if thans on nuanced situations like that because i don't think they work i would agree with what that. i think works better is to give somebody a world to live inside and the world is our mission so our mission is to joyously create and empower trusted partnerships and we need that partnership with our customer. We need the partnership with our painter and we need the partnership with our sales team. And so as long as the production coordinator is operating from that world with the salesperson and the customer, you can usually create a win for all. Like, hey, maybe we do the change order at cost. Mm -hmm. Or maybe in this situation, the customer is pretty certain that he talked about it and we made a mistake. Yeah. And so we're going to eat that cost and we're going to learn from the mistake. And we're going to refine and we're going to refine and we're going to refine. So I think I didn't answer your question directly on purpose. Every situation is different. And that's why I need managers to, like I said, operate from that world we've created. Yeah. That's where they create their value. Yeah. You have a exactly. job because you deal with these problems. Otherwise, we could just probably create AI that could do yeah. the majority of this. Well, I was actually going to ask that next yeah. is like, so one thing, because you're dealing like, what? curious, what's your like average size job? $6,000. Like, so, so I wasn't yeah. far off with the 5,000 guests. So uh -uh. 6,000 bucks. Um, when we're dealing with, I'd say our average purchase right now is probably 175 or so. Mm -hmm. Like. That's our a rough average purchase, and so we're dealing with a lot of a lot of money, and then we're also in a highly litigious realm. Like people love love to sue over real estate, especially mm -hmm. in Texas for some reason. Um, and so we've actually I've considered having um, like discrete body cameras on my acquisitions guys. Wow. Um, not 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 just not for just, everyone's protection. Yeah. Well, like. Because yeah. we're also, you know, we're, once you're entering someone's home and most actually currently, not by choice, but currently all of my acquisitions guys are male. Mm. I'd love to have some females if anyone out there is looking for a job, but um, it is, it's hard to find females that are willing to put themselves in that position. 
And then when you're a male and you enter into, say, a female's home, once that door shuts behind you, whatever she says, you did. You know, and that, that may not be the actual law, but that's the law that most police ab- abide by right now. And so if you know, there's that level, like I'm worried about that, and that hasn't happened yet, mm-hmm. with how many homes we see and go into, it's a matter of time. It's high liability. High liability. So there's liability yep. from that perspective. Then the other and thing we actually deal with more often is, well, sales guys said this stuff. Yep. And if I have everything recorded and video recorded, um, I'm not going to watch it all, but I, I have access to it. And then AI can listen to it all and give me breakdowns. Yeah. Um, Transcribe all of it. Exactly. And then it's like, you know, we'd have an idea of what happened in that appointment. And so I, have you ever, I've obviously thought about this, yeah. but not like in depth, not to the point where I've really done much about it. I've bought like a couple of cameras that can like clip into your shirt or something. They're, they're small. They're not like the police ones that are really right. obvious. Um, this may look like a pen or something. Yeah, it's not quite a pen. It's, it's you know, I don't know. It's like maybe a centimeter and a half by a centimeter that would stick out. And it's probably yeah. three inches long by maybe an inch wide. They're smaller and they could clip into your pocket right here or wherever. But so I've thought about it. I haven't actually done it yet because I don't have a good way to like bring in all the information and really deal with it all. But have you looked at anything like that to kind of protect yourself or is your theory like that's what the managers are for and they'll deal with it when the problems arise? So I use AI and recording technology for my one-on-ones and I love it with managers uh, and my staff. mm -hmm. Any meeting with my partner, any meeting with an employee. And yes, it does. I do think in the back of my head, okay, this is going to help my liability because everything, all of our meetings are recorded and I could easily go back and say, hey, we had a conversation about this performance related issue and it didn't get addressed. Yeah. With customers, however, and this is in my world, not yours, I've found that making them wrong never tends to work for us. Like, no, we talked about this, check out this recording, or no, we put it in writing on the contract. And so that's, a, that's one of the directions we went. It's like, oh, we're gonna get super detailed with the contracts, we're gonna be super thorough. And while that's important, at the end of the day, your customer still has their experience. They still have their story. They still totally. have their truth. Yep. And even though it's in writing and they don't want to accept what you're saying, we've found that it's hard to move forward with you're wrong. Mr. Customer, you're wrong. Here's why. And so we just try not to operate from you're wrong Yeah. and handle it more like a conversation, like what what kind of offer can we create where we move forward and it's a win for all? Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you that that's absolutely the way to deal with it um, before an attorney's involved. Agreed. 100%. Like everything you're saying, I absolutely agree with. Once an attorney's involved, having that recorded information uh, can mm-hmm. be helpful. Um, depending on who it supports, like, and at the same time, like for me, if we're wrong, I would rather know we're wrong. Know my guy promised something that was stupid, (laughs) deliver on it and stay out of the courtroom. Yeah. You know, that, that would be my preference. I would rather, because once a court's involved, well, there's a lot of additional costs that goes in. That's not a win for any of the parties that originally were involved. 
What we do is once something starts to escalate, we typically cut our losses. Yeah. Once it's even a little bit like, oh, this could be going to an ugly place, we invest the resources to make sure that whatever the customer needs is met and we just move on and go, okay, we're never working with them again. One yeah. of the benefits of a $6,000 average yeah, job. Yeah, absolutely. A $20,000 job, $30,000 job, no problem. We'll get it done even if we have to eat the whole cost and we'll move on. Yeah. And so that, that's our philosophy. I couldn't agree more. Just and different, probably different business yeah. realities. Yeah, when you're, I mean, and then uh, there's additional problems that occur that are out of everybody's control in real estate because mm -hmm. there's other parties involved. Like there are, there, there's a title to every property mm -hmm. and that title has an additional layer to it that neither buyer nor seller control. Very mm -hmm. unforeseen. Yeah, very unforeseen. So there's other things that come up and like a lot of the areas where I've had to be involved with attorneys is usually around the title company. Uh, there's title companies and seller's disclosures. Those two things are basically where... The most gray area. That's, yeah. Well, there's a lot of title companies that operate with... Um, every business decides how far into the gray they're, they're willing to go. Some title companies are willing to get... Uh, talk about Fifty Shades of Gray. Mm. They're willing to get real dark. And there's some title companies that are, you know, they keep it really light and they are very by the book. And, um, and it, with the number of transactions I've done, I've worked with all of them. Uh, all, not all the title companies, but hmm. all the types of title companies yeah. I feel like, and I've seen some that operate really dark into the gr into the gray, and um, I've seen the other side. And those ones that operate really dark, we try to avoid them at all costs, and that's part of why we won't use other people's title companies. Like we do from time to time um, in certain situations. Usually, when someone already has title pulled and a, a buyer didn't perform, and they're coming to us, and it's already cleared and ready to go. But even then, we're still nervous because it's like, man, if this title company missed something or broke something or somewhere in the chain of title is broken, yes, we have title insurance, but title insurance isn't as beautiful as it sounds. Insurance it, in general. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it can help for yeah. sure. But it, that's still, I'm guessing here, but I'm guessing part of your philosophy for just getting it off your plate is so you can focus on what's actually important. It's like if you can grow your business um, and, and let's say throughout 2024, you get the referral thing down and it's a one-to-one, -one, I'm guessing that's going to be dramatically, like exponentially more valuable than any one, two or three jobs that you're going to have to eat. Yeah. So by keeping your eye focused on that thing and not these weird one-off problems that you're constantly getting pulled into, you could just make more money and have a much less stressful life. It's an energy thing. Yeah, it's a conservation of energy. It's a conservation of resources. And when people first start working for me, they're, I think they're often taken aback how quickly I am to settle any type of situation. Mm -hmm. I want to preserve their energy. I want to preserve my energy. I'm not in the business of making customers wrong and proving yeah. myself or my case. Like I, I just assume, like, let's get it done and move on. Absolutely. I am absolutely in agreement with that. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's times where court is the path forward. Yeah. So it gets a little bit more complicated. It, it does. Um, We've had some pretty serious incidents that have popped up. I mean, it's construction. Yeah. I've got 
hundreds of guys in people's homes every single week. Mm -hmm. We did over a thousand projects last year. Yeah. It's Murphy's law. Like something's bound to happen. Something is bound. So we've negotiated really particular things and it's not uncommon for my executive assistant to put up a settlement agreement and, and put small things together. Like, Hey, you know, we're going to discount your project this much, or we're going to offer this much in a refund for a release of liability. That's not uncommon. I mean, it's just part of doing business. I don't think it's talked about enough. No, it's, I mean, especially at volume. Like mm-hmm. if you're doing, if you're a small operator doing some small amount of jobs, mm-hmm. you're playing the odds, right? You can avoid it for to a time. As you reach more and more scale, it's not an if, it's a when. Mm-hmm. Once you're doing enough of anything, it's a when. Something's gonna pop off, just when. And uh, are you ready for it? And so like this year, um, I think it was September 1, there was several new laws that went into effect for wholesaling real estate. Mm. And one of them is like, you've got to, there's just additional disclosures that need to be made. Easy stuff. But like making sure that's in our contracts, making sure that's correct. Making sure you've had a couple different attorneys and maybe a title company or two all look at it and agree, checks the box. Stuff like that, it's annoying. But man, once you've dotted those I's and crossed the T's and feel good about it, it's like, man, I sleep better at night. No kidding. Those, the, the energy you're talking about, like when you're in a, uh, a lawsuit, particularly de- it depends on the uh, magnitude of the lawsuit. Like if there's a lawsuit, we're going to lose a few thousand bucks and you've got you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Not a big deal. Yeah. Um, it will, it will assert energy, but far less because your investment is like, well, if I lose, it's not that big of a yeah. deal. The other end is like, if that lawsuit means that you're losing your business, your family, whatever it may be, the amount of energy that will take up is astronomical. All of it. Like it will be consuming. It will take sleep. It will take peace. It will take your everything for a while. It, it isn't lost on me that doing business in the current market at the size that I'm at means that every day I'm at risk for losing it all. Mm-hmm. Even doing things the best we can. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I, it's not lost on me for a minute. Yeah, it's hard. It's like you try to make sure you have all the insurances yep. in place and all of the entities are segregated the proper way. Every, yep. Everything's set up correctly, but it's like... You're yeah. one huge mistake away. Or small mistake, man. Like we, yeah. we found out the other day that um, some of our accounts payable were going from one entity um, paying for another entity's something which pierces the corporate veil. As soon as that's done, it, like it, it can all get reached. And, you know, we, we fix the issue, but it's like, well, what is that? Is that pierced forever? <laughs> yeah. You know, like how do we, how do we undo that? And, <laughs> And you know, we, we, we've had the yeah. company pay the other company back and, and we've made it all as right as we can. But you know, in the event we had a major lawsuit, which we don't, but in the event we did, and some really good accountant was brought in by a really good attorney in the discovery process, could they find that? Yep. Probably. We could also show we paid it back and that it, we could label it as a loan um, to the other company or whatever. But what if one of those happened and we didn't catch it? I think I think it helps to keep into perspective like this is all a self-created game that's really meaningless Mm -hmm. at the end of it all. I mean, money and 
business and commerce in general, it's great. I love what it does for people. Like I'm so fulfilled by that, what it does for my team, my partners, but it is just, uh, it is a game. Yeah. And what, if it were all taken away tomorrow, we could still start the game back over again. Totally. Like when I was first getting involved in my career, <clears throat> this is when I, this was like 2011 or 12. And I had some car dealerships and a restaurant. The restaurant was getting acquisitioned sort of by um, a fund that had hundreds of millions of real estate and holdings. And the guy who was in charge of that fund was working with me to basically we had a restaurant on a university campus. They had just built a $75 million apartment complex there. Mm -hmm. And this was in 2011 numbers. So this is probably a $300 million apartment complex now. And um, part of it was a 6,000 square foot space for a restaurant and they wanted for some reason uh, our restaurant to go in there. So like, we're going to buy your company or a big part of it. You're going to go in, you're going to operate. We're doing this. I was talking with him one time and dude, brilliant, went to like Wharton school of business, like smart guy. And he'd raised hundreds of millions of dollars. He was very financially intelligent guy. And I don't know how we got onto it, but he, he was talking about his wife and he's like, if some, I think it was like, Hey, if I, it was the, if you get hit by a bus conversation and it shifted to like, um, to a divorce conversation. And he's like, Oh, I just give my wife everything. And I'm like, what, you know, at the time, cause at the time I had nothing. I mean, I was very nowhere near the financial level of where I'm at now. And looking at him, I'm like, man, you've worked, he was mid thirties and worked his whole life to get to where he's at. And I was like, you would just walk away from it all like that. He's like, yeah, I can do it again. It's up here. And it's like, he's not wrong. Like I could do it again. Does it mean I want to do it again? Yeah. I'm not dying to do it again, but I know I could. I think it's one thing to, to hear that and think and know like, yeah, that makes sense. I think it's another to really experience it and yeah. feel it. Absolutely. And I've gone through a couple like rebuilds and I, I can feel it. I can feel that. Yeah. I'm confident that I could recreate the success that I've had and then some if it was taken away. I think that's probably what he's talking about. Absolutely. It's, like, it's just this self trust. Yep. Self-confidence mm -hmm. that whatever pops up, you know, even if I lose it all, I can rebuild it again. Yeah. Yeah. And what's cool is I've done that a few times in my life now. And when you rebuild it, you get to shape it differently and better and mm -hmm. potentially put a better foundation underneath it than you had before. And you have all this, like no one can take away the knowledge and wisdom you've gained from doing it. That is yours. Mm -hmm. And that's worth a lot of money. Like you look at a Jeff Bezos and it's like, yeah, he's mostly out of Amazon, but I just heard him on Lex Friedman's podcast. I'm like, I've, bro, yeah. if that guy got thrown to the <laughs> wolves again, he would create another juggernaut. Yeah. Dude is, he's like listening to him and how he thinks through things. I'm like, wow. Like, Are you is, considering implementing the six page memo thing? Dude, I heard that <laughs> this morning and I'm like, oh, yeah. if I'm going to do it, I'd have to write one. And, yeah. 
I could write one, but oof. he's right about the thinking. He, he yeah. is. He's spot on, man. Yeah. He's I like, this is my... why we don't use PowerPoints. So why we use a six-page memo and how much thought has to go into it. Yeah. And the audience's reception of it. And I'm like, he's so right. He's so right. Yeah, I put my share of bullshit PowerPoints together. Everybody has. Like yeah. that's what you're <laughs> trained to do in college. Yeah. Like that's what it trains you to do. It's like BS your way through it and come out with a decent grade. Yeah. And you like, as soon as he said that, I was like, dude, that just like, he just nailed down the entire business world with that phrase. Like he just got a, like, that is a big part of the problem in the business world. There's not the deep thinking and inquiry needed. The other thing I really liked is like what he talked about with surfacing truth. Like I didn't catch that. He, he said that one of the worst things a company can do to itself is oh. to sell internally. Mm-hmm. Like when one department tries to sell another or there's uh, someone's trying to convince someone else of something and they do it using like sales tactics. Yeah. External sales, excellent, right? But internally within the company, it needs to not be a, a sales process. It needs to be a truth um, surfacing process. Raw exposed like the more truth they can come up once once decision makers have all of the truth they can make an excellent decision versus if they're being sold to do this thing it's much it's impossible for them to make a good decision i've found myself doing that with employees just feeling like holding back a little bit on what's currently going on oh we're really struggling with this and, and kind of spinning it or making it less than what it is to protect their feelings or keep them from running away. And it's a, hu- it's a big impediment to the growth and evolvement of the company. So you're saying when you're talking to an employee yeah. and like, let's say they're screwing up, not being fully honest that with part's them about... That easy for me. Okay, okay. Well, what, what, but t- protecting like, one department for another, like let's okay, say okay. we're really struggling with a particular production manager that just is struggling with communication and that service advisor, the the rest of the team's getting a lot of phone calls about it. Well, I found myself protecting the perception oftentimes of how people perceive one another Yeah, to make sure that it's like, I don't want a salesman to start making up stories. Oh, we don't do a good job with communication. Oh, we don't do a good job taking care of customers. Mm-hmm. And then that affecting their ability to sell. But the reality is like if we just dealt with the truth up front and really had high accountability, we would be a better company. Yeah. And so I've worked on taking down some of those walls myself and and keeping things open and raw and yeah encouraging it actually yeah it's like you have to reward it you have to building that culture where people want to tell the truth even if that truth is that they screwed up Mm -hmm. like how awesome is a company if your employee screws up and the first thing they do is call you tell you they screwed up like it's so counterintuitive because as a child like when I would screw up it's like I gotta hide this from mom and dad right there's consequences Um, but now I want my employees to surface the screw-ups for a few reasons. One, so that we can avoid the the lawsuit yeah. or whatever. Like, I, I don't want those. Two, so that they, the employee themselves, can learn from it. 
three, so the other employees in that role can learn from it. And four, so the company as a whole can learn from it and systems and procedures can get put in place to avoid those same mistakes getting made again. But how do you reward screwing up and keep a culture of winning? You've got to hold space for both and you've got to hold space for accountability, I think. Not accountability in in an unhealthy way, but we really want people at the end of the day to take responsibility at our company. And so I'm fine with screw ups, but I'm a little particular about them. Like I, I don't want them to come from a powerless place. Like it's the customer's fault or it's the, it's bad leads or I really struggle with a screw up that comes from a a place of victim or fear energy. Mm -hmm. I'm totally fine with the screw up if we own it. Like, Hey boss, this is what happened. I want to learn from it and grow and I'm open and curious. That's just not always the reality. And that's something else I need to work on is just accepting people for where they're at. Yeah, a lot of people don't like, so going back to what you said earlier, you gotta hire the right people mm-hmm. who want that growth. Yeah. And so if you if you do that step right, then hopefully that's the energy they come to you with. Yeah. And it may not be all the time, but you know, the majority of the time. So it's really goes back to who you're bringing in. Like, because if you bring in the people that don't want growth, then they're never gonna come to you with that energy. It doesn't matter the training, the culture, whatever you incentives you provide to come, they're not going to. Ugh, hiring. And I think a lot of it is, I know, I don't know your whole journey, but I think a lot of it is also your, your own awareness, your own consciousness, and who are you unconsciously attracting into your organization? 100%. And perhaps I've spent years attracting people who need to be taken care of, need to be heroed. Yeah. And uh, operate from a general victim spot. Totally. Yeah. So if you really want to get deep with it, it's like you're kind of bringing it into your, into your own organization. Well, there's something in you that's yeah. attracting that. Right. Like if uh, it's like, it's like the, um, the battered spouse. Doesn't matter, male or female. Yeah. The ba- individual, the battered individual, the <laughs> battered spouse that comes and they say, here's all the crap this spouse did and why this spouse yep. is so terrible and all. And it's like all of that, let's say it's all true. What does it say about you that you attracted and allowed that type of person into your mm-hmm. life? And whether they want to take that or not, um, if they decide not to, they're going to repeat it. If they decide to take accountability, take it, deal with whatever brought that in, they have a chance of not bringing that into their life again. But that's a, holding up that mirror is something a lot of people are too scared to look at. Finding the ones who do want to see that, they're out there. It's tough to find them. Yeah, I've noticed the more I develop and the more I grow, the easier it is for me to be in an interview and, and I can get present to the energy. I can get present to some of the language, mm-hmm. the way they describe their previous employer is a great tell. Yeah. 
the way they describe their goals or why they are where they are is a great tell. And I can, I can sense if I'm going to bring in the wrong energy better and better each time. Yeah. Now how to scale that and build a system around it. Yeah. I don't know. I think there is some intuition, some sensing, some gut to great hiring. Yeah. That's my belief. You know, I would argue that if you're excellent at hiring and doing what you're saying, it should result in a less frequent need to hire. Mm -hmm. And it should also result in the employees you're bringing on um, being able to do more and handle more load. And they're growing because that's what you're saying you're looking for. If they're doing those things, um, you know, the need and with where you're at now from a growth standpoint mm -hmm. is pretty steady. You shouldn't need to do a ton of hiring. Right. And so the need to scale that, obviously, if you want to become some massive whatever, yeah, you're always going to have to figure out how to scale every aspect of everything in the business. But scale isn't always about becoming a behemoth. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's about scaling yourself out of the company, letting the company operate. Right. That's something I'm discovering for myself and maybe that hiring thing that I'm on to, I just, I, I keep for myself right now. And, and to your point, the people that I'm attracting, I'm thinking of my partner in Waco, for example, he can do it too. Like he can hire great people. Mm -hmm. In fact, like when I'm hiring someone for here in Dallas, I want them to talk to my partner in Waco as well. So he can kind of cross reference. Yeah. So you really can build that in others and, and trust others to do it eventually. True. It's definitely teachable. It's yeah. not something that you're born with. Right. I think there's people like everything is an aptitude for it, but it, you can learn it hundred percent. Yeah. Speaking of like, okay, so I've got this more mature painting business. What's next? Like that's been on my mind the last mm -hmm. couple of years. And I'm really discovering this desire to kind of give it away and not totally, but just like step out of the way and, and remove myself as the bottleneck. You know, what does it look like for me to step out of being the sales manager and let somebody else grow into it? And where do they want to take the company? And what's their future? What's their desire? And that's something I've been playing with over the last six months or so. And I've made a lot of mistakes with it. I mean, I've, I've done it the whole like, I don't want to mess with this. You deal with the department. Mm -hmm. But now I want to do it more from an empowered, conscious place where there's like a, a partner track and we really give people equity and buy-in and they create their future in the environment that I've created. Would that be in other markets in your mind or? I think it starts with like departmental leaders. So like we get leaders and heads of all the departments and then we launch new divisions and we create an incubator. We create this environment where people are growing and learning and loving together in business. And they have the support system to go say, hey, let's start a solar company or let's do a B2B uh, contractor tech company or let's like my partner in Waco, let's start a business in Waco mm -hmm. and kind of let 
be the supporter, be the coach, be the guide to yeah. helping other people fulfill their their dreams and ambitions. Yeah. I That's kind of where I'm finding that my next step is. Yeah, I feel like if business is operating correctly, that's what it should do. Yeah. Create opportunity. So one of the things that I heard mentioned recently, and this was kind of like an aha moment for me, was like, why did, I don't know why I'm talking about Bezos a lot. I don't, I've never <laughs> even studied him, but yeah. So why did Bezos become so wealthy? It's because he brought so many people along with him. So many people have become millionaires because of what he's created, which is why he's become a billionaire. Like it, how many millionaires have you created? If the answer is zero, you're not going to become a billionaire. It's like, and not, not that I'm trying to become a billionaire at all. I'm just, I'm just saying like, it makes a lot of sense yeah. when you think about it. It's like he created a platform. And if you look at YouTube, same thing. You look at a lot of these really big companies that have grown really fast and there's exceptions to it for sure. But there's a lot of a lot of that going on where it's like some company, I mean, Facebook is a great example. Zuckerberg created something that, I mean, I personally have made at least a million dollars on Facebook and not from content, yeah, just from the network that has existed. Absolutely. Um, yeah. When you think about the connections, like I never even knew you saw me on Facebook until an hour ago. Never even knew. But it's like you think about the connection, the business we've done together. I mean, we've both made a lot of money from each other. And then I think about the other networks and thing networking that's happened from that. And it's massive. And none of that money is really going directly to Zuckerberg, but it is because both of us have spent time on that platform. And every second we spend on that platform puts money in his pocket. Money is such an easy, tangible way to look at the concept. Uh, but I think it does so much more. It's like, yeah, you're creating millionaires, you're creating economic prosperity for people, and you're also creating the opportunity for them to grow and heal and provide mm -hmm. and, and show up for their families and yeah. bring love to business. Like yeah. if we get more of the right people in those types of positions, it mm -hmm. has a bigger impact than just money. Money's Money's just easy to measure and see. Absolutely. Right? It's That's, so easy to measure. Yeah. But the There's other so things are hard to measure. Yeah. yeah. How do you measure that? How do you measure like it's immeasurable? And so that's why it's, I feel like also talked about less because we're in a time now where I feel like being able to prove something is important, especially when you're saying, Hey, do things this way. Here's the proof. Um, you don't have that, but I, I hear you and I totally yeah. agree that that at the end of the day, it's not just, it, it is the money and the money is a great way to measure it, but it's the growth that has been created because think about how much like these guys who crush it on Amazon had to learn and create yeah. in order to make that money. Who they became. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That growth is the result, 100%. Same with creators on Instagram, TikTok, wh yeah. wherever it is, like, some of these creators put out phenomenal content and they were able to learn how to do that because they were able to monetize it. And so the money is a byproduct of the growth they experienced, but it's measurable. <laughs> so, and it's what's talked that's, about. Exactly. And, um, well, there's also so many people that are trying to figure out the money thing. Like, 
and I get it. Like, especially Isn't that a funny sentence trying to figure out the money thing. Yeah, man. But it is true. Yeah. Well, and I feel like it's just because of traditional education. It's like traditional education does not result in making money. And like this fallacy you're taught the whole time growing up in elementary school, you yeah. got to do good so that um, you can learn how to do well in high school. In high school, you got to do well so you get into a good college. If you don't get into a good college, you're doomed. You're not going to get a good job. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like that whole system is is kind of in the process of falling on its face right, right now, I feel like. But it's not enough to become aware of the fact that it doesn't work. No, not then yet. Then your money problem is not solved. Yeah. yeah. It's getting there, though, man. I just yeah. heard about, this was in the past 60 days, lots of big like fortune 500 companies just dropped the requirement for a college degree. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It's like, and so the, so <laughs> you think about that and it's like, you think about the guy who just graduated, you know, cause there's college graduations are going on over the past couple of weeks right mm -hmm. now. Right. And these guys that they're hundred thousand dollars in debt and they're going to go work it, let's say into it. And then the week before they graduate into it, it's like, Hey, you don't need that degree by the way that you just spent a hundred thousand dollars getting. It's like, oof. But you may need that fraternity brother's uncle. And what? so, yeah, you may need your fraternity brother's uncle to get that job at Intuit. Yes, And I so agree that's that. where, like, college, it, you, you'd have to look at it differently. Like, yes, you want to learn and experience, but maybe it's more of a networking angle. Maybe it's more of a what kind of professors can you get close to. Yeah. I also think it's a good time for people to mature. Yeah, and I feel like it's an environment where that can happen, and it's also an environment where absolute debauchery can occur. Yeah, and it's like I definitely had some. <laughs> yeah, a lot of years a lot of people wasted. did. Yeah, yep. and it's you know it's a growing learning experience, but it's it's going to be interesting, really, especially over the next decade, and especially yeah. since COVID, where it's like the whole education system kind of like stumbled a bit, where it's mm -hmm. like hey, we don't actually have to get kids into the classroom. This can all be done remotely. And then the parents realized it was bullshit. Yeah. Because yeah. they saw their kids cheating on every quiz and studying for 30 minutes a day. I've been working on my wife for the last three years to be like, can we just homeschool our kids? Yeah. Like pri private teacher or something. Let's pull them out of school because um, I feel like the – education system as a whole is not setting kids up for success. Like Crystal and I were joking the other day because we got our tax return back from our accountant and we need to file it. And we're like reading it. And we're both like, dude, we don't really know how to read this. It's 250 pages long. <laughs> and we're like, where do we find out how much we pay? Yeah. And we couldn't figure it out. And finally, we just emailed the CPA. We're like, bro, how much we pay? Yeah, like, That's the like, only thing I care about. Just, just like, give me the number. And he sends us a number and we're like, oh, okay, thanks. Like, that. that's it. But it's like, I can't read it. I never learned. Like, yeah, I yeah. could read a, like, the basic, whatever, but like a, a complex tax return. And mine's not that complex, but it's 250 pages long. Mm -hmm. It's like, I can't read that. School never taught me how to read that. That would have been useful to know. How to, how to, what you just said, you're working on a mortgage company right now, right? How to um, apply for a mortgage. That would be great information to know in school. No kidding. But we don't learn that. So I don't know. I, I do appreciate the in school, like you have to learn how to learn. You have to learn how to interact. You have to learn how to create relationships and leverage those relationships. Like all of that is important and things you definitely learn in school. But 
you're not necessarily going to learn those things. Yeah, part of me almost wonders if we have the wrong context or belief about it in general, which is like, well, the world owes me education for me to be successful. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's what we inherit about education that's the problem, and it should be more what is my family's view on education and what responsibility can we take at home for self-education and discovering and learning things on our own? Yeah, absolutely. Because there's going to be increasingly more and more information out there. I think our job is to teach ourselves and our families how to discern it. And what are some of the tactical skills and lessons and distinctions you need to, to get through the world. Totally. Because right now, one of the most difficult things is from the information you receive, what's true and what's not. Mm -hmm. It's like you can, I've seen this done where it's like, you can Google like, does coffee cause blindness? Or I think was, I think I'm guessing was an example I saw. And it's like, you can find where coffee cures blindness and coffee mm -hmm. causes blindness. And there's articles on both. Yeah. And it's like, Huh. Well, which one's true? So the discernment you're talking about, it's, I totally agree. It's getting more and more obscure and what's true, what's not. So, well, man, I've enjoyed having you here. Yeah. It's been a great conversation, a little bit uh, deeper than I planned on going, but yeah. I like that. Business is, um, it's great to be able to talk numbers and, and everything with business, but I think you're right that behind that, there's a much, um, I'd say, larger calling. And if you can figure out how to accomplish that, the money side takes care of itself. Absolutely. And um, I feel like that kind of boils down a lot of what we talked about today. So. It's a hell of a lot more fulfilling, at least. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now it's like, because you're right about the growth with money. It's like the money is a result of the other growth that occurred because of the um, incubator, whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it, that these, these men have have created. Yep. So I love it, man. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Appreciate it. Um, till next time.